Welcome to The Versatile Writer, the podcast that aims to help and support like-minded writers. This week, I want to talk about sequels. As has become the norm with my podcasts, I'll be analysing, over-analysing and allowing some indulgence in my thoughts. I'll also be asking and answering questions as they arise and reminding myself as I'm thinking these thoughts, and chances are so are you. So here goes, sequels. I think a lot about sequels. I get curious as to why mainstream authors make decisions to create sequels and I apply those reasons to my own stories. Keep in mind that I independently publish my work. What mainstream writers and publishers are doing can be a useful marketing strategy, although strategy might be too powerful a word here because that would suggest I have a set-in-stone marketing strategy for each book I publish, and I don't, mostly because each book is quite different from the last. I suspect some authors are signed up to write a collection of stories, so writing book after book of stories of the same characters is a done deal. You often see it in the advertising when a new novel is about to come out. It might say on the blurb, book one, or something similar. For those publishers who don't want to give away that kind of spoiler, they might not say anything at all and let the readers make up their own minds. Often social media kicks in here, and when the fastest readers of a new book air their thoughts... They may highlight in Twitter posts, it can't end here, what about character X? Occasionally, with independently published authors, they may get to the end of their story and realise that the whole book is too big to publish as a single story. So, for the sake of publishing an overly heavy book that may look too intimidating for some readers, or be too expensive, that they opted for a much easier to consume part one and part two. This makes good sense to me, and maybe it does to you as well. For instance, I might buy a book for many reasons, the author, the synopsis, the cover, the idea of the story, but buying it and reading it are two completely different things for me. Buying the book means I've secured myself a copy to read when I'm ready to, but if the book is particularly large, that might feel too intimidating to read especially as I like to read a book in one go. That's not to say in one sitting, it's more about reading it all before I begin another, though I do read many books at once. Large books mean I have to be committed to that one story, and if it's a particularly large book, I may not have the time, energy or commitment or stamina to focus on it in one go. I'm aware most readers don't have this attitude when they open a book. It might have something to do with how my brain works, who knows though I have been known to keep large books with a particularly nice cover next to my bed for a long stretch of time. This is probably about weaning myself into the book. I am a strange cookie, aren't I? Then there's the other kind of sequel, the one that begins as a completed story, but has raised subtle questions that are answered in the sequel. This is often only written after considerable sales of this first book have been achieved and gives the publisher a good reason to exploit the interest on the first book. You'll notice I've tried to cover both mainstream and independently published books here, and that's for good reason. Authors themselves foot the bill when they independently publish sequels, where mainstream publishers do that. So, for an independently published author, the reasons for publishing a sequel might be because the first story sold well. And then there's the other kind of author, the one who places less value on the financial outcome of their sales than they do on the connection they had with their characters. I fit into this category. Writing stories for the love of it is a wonderful endeavour. 
It's probably also why I've named my business For the Love of Books. Although you might have twigged by now, it ensures that I'll never be a rich writer because the sales of my books are rarely so high that I can just judge the writing of a sequel primarily on my bank balance. It's more about the fact that I'm a lover of the craft, of the story, of the characters, more than the money it might make. So my take on it all is a rather indulgent one, one that allows me to continue the hit of dopamine that I'm getting from writing the original story. Let me explain. Regular listeners to The Versatile Writer and readers of my books might know that when I write fiction, I find my relationships with the characters can become all-encompassing. I've talked before about using features of actors as a resource for characters and watching movies that actor is in so I can absorb everything about them. This was covered in the Versatile Writer episode on Hyperfocus earlier this season when I went into extreme detail about how addictive my personality is and how hyperfocusing on something can increase my dopamine production, the happy stuff our brains create, and how that if you do that a lot, your brain is in a constant euphoric state. Continued euphoria sounds like a great thing, and it is, but only to a point. There's only so much you can include in a story to keep it fresh and exciting, and after that it has to end. When I'm writing a story I really love, I don't want it to end. And the hope is neither will the readers. I might love it for the characters, or the character-to-character interaction, or the character-writer relationship. Or I might love it for the story itself, or the location, or the excitement of the whole thing. Sometimes just having a story that's free-flowing, that is, a story that doesn't feel like a chore to get it onto the page, is where the excitement is. There are so many aspects of writing a story, for me, that can bring out the dopamine hit and laughter. And that's why I'm not likely to ever be the most logical thinking of writers or business owners. But that's just the way I am, and I'm good with it. I've researched how other writers deal with their character-writer relationship and it's probably fair to say that most writers are able to compartmentalise their emotions and feelings so they can deal with their everyday lives. To a point, I can do that too, but I also live and breathe mine. I actively dream about them and bring those dreams back into my everyday life. And if you're like me and your process is similar, I'd love to hear from you. And you can get in touch via the Facebook group for the Versatile Writer the link's on the show notes, and or you can just search for The Versatile Writer on Facebook. Being emotionally attached to a story is probably a good thing for a writer. You need to bring forward aspects of the character's personality that are relevant to the task they have to complete, and also those traits that are important to the relationship with co-characters. I'm not sure I could do that as effectively if I didn't feel something good or bad for the character. The way I see it is that a lot of character creation is about getting inside their head and to do that I have to dig deep inside my own head as well as using writing resources. But it might seem to you that I'm getting off this episode's point. Sequels. Well I'm getting there. In a nutshell I get so involved with the characters that my emotions take a hit when the story is over. So I've discovered that one of the best ways to deal with this occupational hazard is to create a sequel. That way, rather selfishly and indulgently, I get to spend more time with the characters and, hopefully, readers who enjoyed the first story will also enjoy the extra time with them as well. So it's not such a selfish act, really, because the end result will be another book for readers to enjoy. In the interests of balance, there is a school of thought that says our characters are completely made up, which they are, and are nothing more than a figment within our heads, which, again, they are. But... 
if we're asking the reader to part with their money for an entertaining experience where they suspend all reality for the duration of the read, I think it's the least we can do as a writer is to immerse ourselves into the spirit of the story and believe the characters are real people too. That way we're giving the reader absolutely everything we can do to ensure their reading experience is the very best we can make it. So how do you find a justified reason to write a sequel? Well, sequels can be born out of anything you raised or implied in the first novel, and the same goes for prequels. I've created a few sequels of my own stories, but most of them are not published. One of my earlier ones, Guardian Angel, which was a self-published novel about 15 years ago and is now out of print, was narrated onto this podcast to ensure it was still out there, albeit in audio format. The story was originally only in print long before ebooks were even a thing. And when COVID-19 hit and everyone was in lockdown inside their homes, I thought it would be a good idea to get it back out there in a DIY audiobook style. There was nothing professional about it. It was quite raw. And that kind of adds to the character of it. And I really enjoy that. The original story is about a crime author. Jane Murray, who rides along with officers from the Boston Police Department in Massachusetts in an attempt to beef up her crime novel sales. Its sequel was about the backstory of one of the detectives, Tim Angel. He was raised by his grandparents because his mother died and his father abandoned him, although the word abandoned is working really hard here. The idea of Tim being raised by grandparents meant that, for me, it provided an interesting reason for the sequel to work and, for Tim, that he treats women in a noticeably different way to his woman-chasing partner, Dale Faulkner. It was a good plot device and one I found both useful and helpful in the creation of both stories. Having that contrasting personality trait between the two men, who both owned strong opinions, meant that sparks would fly, and in this primarily romantic suspense story, that would be a good, meaty hook upon which to hang interest in dialogue, behaviour, and more than anything else, provide a basis for the ensuing romantic relationship that was about to take place. This story is a prime example of how I created a sequel from the first novel, because there's a throwaway line in the story where Tim and Jane are sharing a takeout. Here's an extract. Tim sighed. You got any chopsticks? We have to eat this with chopsticks. You're setting your ways for a young guy, she gestured to the cutlery drawer. I'm older than you. Jane laughed. How old do you think I am? I was taught it's not polite to ask a lady her age. She nodded, emphasising the point was quite right, grabbed the two plates and ushered him through to the living room. Who taught you that? Your mother? My grandmother, actually. My grandparents raised me. I don't remember my mother. She died when I was a little kid. The chapter goes on to mention how Jane notices his traditional behaviours like opening doors, paying for dinner and treating her respectfully. It was something she hadn't experienced with most modern men she'd dated. While this says something negative about the kind of men she usually dated, it also highlights that being traditional can seem, in inverted commas, old-fashioned. But in Tim and Jane's case, it's something she's been secretly searching for. Guardian Angel, The Journey Home, sees Tim receive an out-of-blue phone call from an agency who's located James Angel, his father, who Tim believed was dead ever since he abandoned him at his grandmother's front doorstep when he was just six years old. The ensuing problem is twofold, fuelled with trust issues and feelings of abandonment and unworthiness. 
who instigated the search, and why did James Angel abandon him only to go on to have another family? Interestingly, the sequel ends with a suggestion of a future family reunion that I'm about a quarter of the way through. This third in the trilogy was a surprise. It has a story surrounding it that shines a light on the third member of the threesome, Dale Faulkner. I thought it was a good way to close the trilogy by giving him a story of his own. These things do have a way of expanding when you consider them absolutely and utterly as real people with real lives. Interestingly again, the story I'm currently working on and editing is a romance with a supernatural subgenre that takes place in both London and Massachusetts and also looks like it might have a sequel attached. Not only that, but it's possible that because it uses the New England setting, it might even accommodate a crossover with the Guardian Angel as an offshoot. Can you imagine writing a crossover with existing characters and some new ones? Tim and Jane were published 15 years ago, but lived, in my mind, for a few years before that, and my current characters were around 10 years old because it was a revised novel. Between the two stories, there's some overlap of character traits and locations, but some of the questions I'll need to answer are things like, will Tim and Jane be 15 years older than the first story, or will it still be modern day? I suspect I'll have to keep them modern day because of Tim's job as a detective. That can be quite a taxing role, so 15 years on would expect him to have been significantly promoted. Alternatively, maybe he got out of police work and tried something else, or even retired. There's so much to consider. As for my current story, I'm careful not to give too much away, but suffice to say it was a revision, as I said, from a decade ago, and was originally a complex story that I've been working on to simplify. I think I've done that, but the sequel and crossover would incur some more complexities. Am I up for the challenge? I'd love to think so. It makes me wonder if, in a DC or Marvel-esque kind of way, that as writers all of our stories exist in a multiverse, that each story and each character exists alongside the others or share universal similarities, whether through relationships, geographical locations or something else. I've heard of other writers doing this, For instance, a romance writer focusing each new novel upon one of four brothers and their families until, at some point, you have a half a dozen novels about an extended family. I really like that idea, but I do wonder if I'd get tired working with the same characters again and again. I like creating new ones and learning about them just as their love interests do. For me, that's a big part of creative writing and writing novels. I recently learned the idea of a multiverse was being considered by author Stephen King, since most of his novels and characters are already linked through geography and character. Listeners might wonder if I have delusions of grandeur when I relate my thoughts in the same sentence as DC, Marvel and Stephen King, but rest assured I do know where my limits are. I just have a great love of film and storytelling and character development. Anyway, that alone, it's a fantastic thing to imagine and certainly something to consider as a future project. I really have to keep on top of things though, so if you're on Twitter where I write most of my writing-related posts and on how I'm feeling, beware, it might get messy. Yes, it means I have a fertile imagination. Yes, it means I'll, I'll be really challenging myself going forwards. And yes, it means the more you feed your imagination, the more it will expand. So really, the sky's the limit. I'd love to hear your thoughts on sequels, crossovers, prequels and your own relationships with people who don't really exist, aka fictional characters. You can get in touch through the Versatile Writer Facebook group 
The link will all be on the show notes. Or through social media, I'm at SJBWrites on Twitter, Sarah Bannum on Facebook, and S.J.Bannum on Instagram. This episode has been really interesting to think about. If you have ideas for future episodes of The Versatile Writer, just let me know. Until next time, thank you for listening to The Versatile Writer on the topic of sequels.